around here. Captain! Signatures detected. Shield up. Signatures detected. Context Southeast Command. What's happening? Context Southeast Command. Delay that order. Context Southeast Command. This is the captain. Context Southeast Command. Get out of my chair. 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 We have engaged the Klingons. 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 Welcome to the greatest discovery, a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of the greatest generation. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. We're already about a third of the way through this first season. Yeah, just shy of a third. It's going to end in, what, like a month and a half. Yeah. And that's kind of a bitter pill to swallow. It feels like the anticipation has been a year. And when the show is finally here, we get uh, 10 weeks of it. Yeah, it is interesting timing. I'm pre-sad is what I'm saying. That's the way I process things. I'm, al- <laughs> I'm already upset. You already missed the show that you still have the majority of to look forward to. So many aspects of my life are just like this. <laughs> That's really, that is a really shrewd observation about your own psyche. You know me about as well as anyone, and I, and I think you know that to be true. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is what the psychologists call insight, Adam. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. It me. Yeah, like uh, this is a show we're recording, uh, you know, week of release, within a week of the release. And, yeah. Uh, so we're, we're, we are inching right up to your, your departure from Seattle, moving down here. I, uh, I sure hope that doesn't compromise any record dates for, for this show. I don't think so. Good. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just do one solo. Yeah, that'll be the very very special episode of The Greatest Discovery. We'll see if Rob's can pitch his voice a little higher and sit in for you. See if anyone notices. You can be like Patrick Stewart doing uh, The Christmas Carol. You can play all the parts. <laughs> um, my one-man show is far more poorly reviewed. Yeah, deeply unpopular one-man show. The Greatest <laughs> Discovery. It's got to be both of us. That's the rule. That's the rule. Um, you were you were partying like a rock star last night. You were sending me all kind of crazy texts. What was that about? Oh, uh, part of my duty before leaving town is spending time with uh, a lot of our closest before we depart. So yeah, it's a uh, it's a lot of stacked up social obligations until we go. So yeah, it was just a. You good old-fashioned weeknight bender <laughs> with uh, with your parents-in-law, you know? It's fun. Got to do wow, it. Wow, it was with your in-laws? Yeah. Yeah. It was, wow. It was <laughs> Two big gin martinis on an empty stomach will really turn up the heat on that situation. That's not enough. <laughs> Had to shoot you some bathroom texts. Classically. Two martinis is not enough. Three is too much. Yeah. Wait, is two too much? Is it? It's one is not enough. Two is too much. Three is not enough. Right? I got it wrong. I've never heard this before. I, I yeah. only have my own, my own uh, sample size to go on. I think that could even be a Churchill quote, which is apt because you were quoting Churchill to me. That's how drunk you were. I, I got Churchill drunk. <laughs> 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 I, uh, I I called us double Churchills. Yeah. Aspir- aspirationally, I was like, yeah. why not? Yeah. One day we'll be uh, 
We'll be chomping on cigars and drinking a case of champagne a day. And future generations will look upon us uh, quite harshly. (laughs) (laughs) We'll rightly reevaluate our contribution to history. Yeah. They will say, This is propaganda! These fond remembrances of their stupid Star Trek podcast! When uh, when the servers that contain our shows are thrown into the fires. <laughs> wow. We'll truly know what we've done. Where servers are burned, soon humans will be burned, Adam. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you watch a show like Star Trek Picard and you see... You see, even they in the in the far distant future have problems. They haven't solved everything. Uh, yeah, and this is the last of the episodes that we saw in the premiere. So after this, we are, we are sailing into the unknown with everyone else. Yeah, how do you feel about that? I was personally, I was hoping to get some screeners. Yeah, uh, that at this point has not happened. We have worked channels. You know, like in the process of like going to conventions and meeting people. You're listening to The Greatest Discovery. This is Mary Wiseman. You know, having contacts, you know, like like our friend Adam Ragusi is a journalist and he told us how to get in touch with the PR department at CBS. All all of this has borne zero fruit. So far, only CBS Legal knows of our existence. (laughs) (laughs) And they definitely do not want to give us screeners. Yeah. They're uh, keeping us at a 10-foot pole distance. I keep not returning their calls. <laughs> when people come up and ask us, are you Ben Harrison? We just deny, right? Yeah, I don't I don't want to get a summons thrown at me. No. Uh, do you want to get into the episode, though? Yeah, I guess we are. I didn't realize it in our, in our little Marin Open. We've been talking a lot about endings and, uh, mm. and beginnings. And sure as yeah. shit... That's the name of uh, Star Trek Picard, Season 1, Episode 3. It's called The End Is the Beginning. Couldn't have planned it any better. We start in flashback. Ben, it's 14 years ago. This is interesting because I think in the premiere, they show this Mars attack flashback again. Mm-hmm. And in this, it kind of looks like the it's part of the last time on Star Trek Picard reel. Yeah. And when you see the three episodes all stitched together, like seeing Mars destroyed a second time in a span of 40 minutes is like a little, it, it, it wasn't super effective for me in the, in the screening, but it was a nice reminder of like what is going on above their heads when Picard walks out of his meeting with the brass and has this fairly long conversation with Rafi outside Starfleet HQ. Picard, uh, with a flair for the dramatic, totally buries the lead of what happened to him in that meeting. They have, like, I don't know, a a full-on five-minute conversation before he drops his bomb. Either they accept the revised evacuation plan or my resignation. (laughs) I kind of interpreted that as he was was easing into the, the bad, bad news. I think because he knows what it'll mean for Rafi, right? He knows how badly that meeting ending is going to splash all over her. And at the end of their sit down, she stomps off in a way that definitely recognizes that. Do you think he knew that she was going to get fired, though? I kind of think that he would have carried himself very differently if he knew that she was about to get her head chopped off as a secondary action for his resignation. It feels 
equivalent to the way a lot of workplaces work and the way projects are assembled out of teams and when those projects are are seen as either failures or canceled midstream i mean what do you do with those people you could fire them or or relocate them elsewhere or something yeah you fire them it's their fault i think raffi understands that that with the project being sunset here and picard being forced to retire that uh she's not long for her career this is an ep- episode that digs a little bit more into this kind of panicked reaction that Starfleet had to the Mars attack. And it like gave some of the admirals an excuse to cancel the Romulan spacelift, which is something that they weren't comfortable to begin with. And the others just don't have the, the moral courage to stand up for something unpopular like that in a time as desperate as this. And that's very familiar to us presently, but it's also very unutopian feeling. I want to talk a little bit about how this is tell and not show and how this is actually really effective when the dialogue is in the hands of of very talented people, right? Like we're hearing this through Picard's firsthand knowledge, but we're not in the room with him. We don't see him deliver this ultimatum. And yet the scene is still uh, incredibly powerful. Right. Part of it is because Patrick Stewart and Picard himself are great storytellers, but the other part of it is that the story he's telling is is fairly painful. And his Hail Mary was to go all in, was to say, you can keep having me or you can pursue this path that you've chosen, but you can't have both. Do you think he started with maybe a little like resistance is futile, like a little <laughs> self-aware kind of, hey guys, I know you're not you're not going to like this plan, but you remember me? I'm the king of resistance is futile. A lot of people get nervous with public speaking and a good rule of thumb is to start with a joke. Right. So <laughs> he gets up there with his, with his laptop and plugs it into the projector and he's like, uh, well, I'd like to start today by just observing that, uh, you know, it once was Locutus. Your, uh, your concerns for my plan are irrelevant. <laughs> uh, Raffi also uh, thinks something's up with the fact that the synths attacked. Like she is seeking. This is not a. This is not a uh, a software malfunction. This this was orchestrated somehow. And she, I think she says Romulan or Tal Shiar, but um, but maybe we can. Do the math that it may be Jat Vash, in fact, that uh, that she's uh, reaching toward. It's a number of times in this episode where Rafi refers to something like that. She's yeah. very sure that she has evidence of this. She also refers to her own feelings of paranoia in this episode. Yeah. Like she has, she is on the paranoid end of the spectrum in a way that Picard really isn't. Like. We talked a lot in the uh, couple episodes about the comics that led up to uh, Star Trek Picard, the Picard Countdown comic series, about how Picard just keeps going around a- extending trust to people. Yeah. And she kind of winds up catching some of the splash over from that as well. Raffi stomps off at the end of this scene, knowing she's on her way to be fired and is disgusted. And we get uh, Picard's Bad Day into theme song here. 
I have a question about the opening graphics. Yeah? Uh, there, a couple things I noticed this time that I hadn't noticed before. All right. Uh, one is that one of the shapes that I hadn't, I hadn't quite, uh, you know, it's, there, there's a lot of abstract shapes going on in this. But one of them I realize is an eye that then is, that co- like crossfades to a camera lens and then crossfades to Mars. Hmm. And I wondered if that, that replacing an eye with a camera lens is a Borg eye motif and that mm. there will be lots of Locutus stuff to come. Oh, that'd be nice. I mean, never forget has been our policy about Picard and Locutus. <laughs> yeah. We won't let him get off the hook for that. No, I mean, like, he's also referred to as the person that saved the Earth from the Borgs in this, but I guess that must mean the uh, the second time the Borgs attacked in Star Trek First Contact. Not the first time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, when there's, like, a time travel-based action to prevent a Borg attack... Do you think, like how does the news report that? Like when the when the Enterprise E gets back, does the does the Federation news service goes go like you're not gonna believe this, but everything you know about first contact is wrong. That has got to be a weird day at the newspaper. Oh boy. <laughs> um, the second thing I noticed in the opening is it it starts with like a a shard of something falling out of sort of the fabric of reality mm-hmm. it's like uh it's like the image of the grapevines is is glass or something and a, and a shard falls out of it and then we see that shard kind of flowing through the images uh going going forward then later in the episode uh when we meet captain rios this shard in his shoulder looks distinctly like the shard in the opening uh, sequence. Wow. It's not glass, but it's metal, but it like it's hard to escape that it's the same shape. I did not notice that. I didn't notice Good it eye. the first time I watched it. I didn't notice it the second time I watched it. But the third time through I was like, that shard, I've seen that shard before. Jeez. I mean, I could be totally wrong. Like I I, I don't know what other shape you might make a shard, but <laughs> could it be that they've buried clues about this season? of the show in the theme. I don't know. And in the opening, maybe. You might be onto something there. Maybe. Of course, in original TNG, the thing they buried was that the ship goes fast. <laughs> A lot. <laughs> so we come back to the uh, the Vasquez Rocks where Raffi has her trailer home. And uh, she's vaping some orchids. Feels like uh, these first couple episodes of Star Trek Picard are about characters telling Picard how much goddamn nerve he's got to be doing (laughs) what he's doing. (laughs) Everyone's getting a hit of that in. Yeah. On the D, like, everybody walked around and talked about how, like, humans don't want for anything. Like, we've eliminated uh, poverty in our society. And it doesn't seem like Rafi like is struggling for basic necessities, but she is she is definitely in a different class than Picard, and that has like socioeconomic meaning for us now. But it's just socio class, I guess, in the future. But like she's talking about his fancy estate and stuff. Like I think that's so interesting. I thought so too. 
it's almost as though she's she's sort of encapsulating her feelings for Picard using uh, his relative wealth. But what happened to Raffi seems more like her ambition was stunted. Right. I don't know if you can tell in the 24th century if a person is successful in their ambitions unless they are surrounded by what would be considered now to be material wealth. Yeah, I think that the fact that we met very few people outside of Starfleet in the run of TNG when it came to like Federation citizens anyways, uh, made it easy to ignore the fact that there would still be some kind of social stratification in a moneyless post-scarcity society. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is an interesting way of kind of easing into some of those ideas. She is ripping some snake leaf hits uh, grown right on her porch, which is convenient. (laughs) Well, in California, you can have up to three snake leaf plants. (laughs) (laughs) It's different state to state, you know? (laughs) She's got that angry addict energy. Pizzas, we need two big pizzas, man. But Picard's not judgmental. All he can do is just absorb it. He is getting told that he was not a good friend to her after after that shit went down. Like, she needed somebody to check in on her after she lost her job and her entire raison d'etre, and he didn't do that. Like, and that's that is a bad look for him. I really like the way later he apologizes to her using a real and good kind of apology. Yeah. But... A lot of Picard's time in this season so far has been getting up into the ball-kicking machine. Yeah. We're seeing it a lot. I also understand why he would be that way, though, because he's coming off of being an admiral, having been a captain, having been the kind of captain that we know to have really valued staying above the fray with that kind of thing. Like, he would be kept aware of, you know, tough situations on his ship, but it was like pretty extreme situations that actually brought him uh, down to the level of like, like weighing in on stuff like that. Yeah. So I don't know. I think, I think he probably just like, like that organ in him probably totally atrophied over his 50 year Starfleet career. And he was a bad friend afterwards, like, because, how could he have possibly been a good friend after an experience like that? Right. You you begin to grow concerned about the other friends of his we might know and love and how they might <laughs> feel about him in this at this moment in time. I mean, it's uh, it's interesting. Like one one thing uh, I've been thinking a lot about lately is the friends that I don't keep in as good of touch with in New York since I moved to LA. And over the last two days, I've had like, good long phone calls with dear friends back in New York City that I probably haven't talked to either of them in over six months. And it's like the second year on the phone, it's like back to old tricks, like making the same jokes and having the same fun. But uh, there, I think there are people that are inherently good at that. And there are people like me who are inherently terrible at it. Wow. Did you just <laughs> cold call old friends? Is that what you did? How actually did you do this? Because I'm going to need to take some notes. One, I called because I realized I'd missed his birthday a couple days prior. And the other one called me because I'd uh, I'd texted him about uh, 
I think you should leave the uh, Tim Robbins sketch <laughs> show on on Netflix. Uh huh. And uh, and he, I guess, had been like busy with a work thing when I texted him and didn't get you know because I'm like I'm like watching an episode of it at lunchtime, right? <laughs> because I'm such a dork. <laughs> Love that show. Yeah. Oh man, so good. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think um, I think this is like a, a another thing that is tell but it's also show in right. this episode back on the board cube uh the reclamation work continues uh it continues with hugh as the director of the borg reclamation project yeah somebody posted just a side-by-side of hugh with you know all the implants and hugh in this show yeah and it's really cool to see like the like the way the implants he had in TNG are like described in some of the scars on his face and stuff. Wow. That's pretty great. That continuity is good. Yeah. They did a great job with it. Jonathan Delarco is not like a big brand name actor or anything, but he's, he's got a ton of confidence and is like playing this character in a, in a very interesting way. This is not wide eyed Hugh that is just becoming aware of his individuality in TNG. It's like a, a guy that's lived 25 years as not that. I think the way you put that is is really interesting because when you say wide eye, I think we talk a lot about how crucial it is for an actor's instrument to be seen, ideally. And Jonathan Del Arco, in that first go-round on TNG, had half of his face covered. And he was still uh, as expressive as any other actor we've enjoyed yeah and in the picard show he is he's disfigured it looks like one of his eyes is uh is pretty badly injured still and yet he's still as expressive and great of an actor as as we remember like it's a it's a greater challenge i think to make you feel a way about a character when your instrument is compromised the way that that his is yeah, I wondered if that other eye was kind of like Jordy's eyes in some of the later movies where he had it replaced with something that looks a lot like an eyeball but is actually like a like a machine eyeball. Love your work. Hugh uh, in the break room is just that guy doing bits at people with his <laughs> with his eyeball, taking it out, putting yeah. it in people's drinks. Slapping the back of his head, <laughs> letting it fly across the room. <laughs> <laughs> he can replicate another whenever he needs to. I mean, who cares? In scenes like this with Soji, like you'd never think that he that he was fun like that. But but no. clearly he is. But yeah, he I mean, you get the sense that he's like he's kind of a big cheese yeah. and and like interestingly a big cheese because he's also talking about the Romulans like they are like pretty cynical about what they're doing with this board cube, but they've uh, you know, it's their cu- their cube as far as like ownership is concerned, and it seems like they've given him a pretty big, important role in the reclamation project. So it seems like he's kind of like a department director that has some pretty radical opinions about the direction of the organization. Pretty straight line between Hugh's resume and the possible jobs that would be right for him. You know, <laughs> I think when he shows up to that interview and they and they review his past experience, I don't I don't know how you don't give him the director of board reclamation job. Right. Yeah. He's kind of made for it. He's going to be great at it. He refers to the reclaimed Borgs as XBs. Yeah. And Ben, this this caught my attention because uh, the car nerd that I am. 
remembered that the Scion XB was the was the cube shaped automobile of of the mid two thousands, right? You remember that? Yeah, that's true. And the premise of the Scion line of automobiles was that they were heavily customizable, right? Right. Just like a Borg's drone, you get all different kinds of drones. How about that? Different gadgets. Very, very fun. Hugh does not have a lot of love for the Romulans that he works with on the cube. He refers to their vision as either one that treats the XBs as property to be exploited or a hazard to be warehoused or even both of those things in equal measure. And that's not a great opinion to have of... I mean, what do you gather is the working relationship here? Does he work for the Romulans in this project, or are they uh, of the same level? I kind of feel like he serves the Romulans here. Yeah, I get the sense that there is a a Romulan organization administering this, and he is the head of the like science part of whatever. Yeah, you know, whatever government or or administrative structure that is. He's very impressed with Soji's work in the last episode in talking to that guy on the surgical table, and he's decided to grant her permission to interview an XB named Ramda. And uh, it's significant because Ramda was, for a time, an expert in Romulan myth. And this is like part of Soji's academic work she believes that that there's some sort of therapeutic potential for this myth making that people have and it could really come in handy when we're talking about uh recovering the xbs and reincorporating them into society it's got to be it's got to feel great for soji right like she's getting tapped on the shoulder somebody somebody noticed that she's good yeah she finds an eyeball in her thermos and uh <laughs> and it's a good thing and not a prank yeah he, he only shows his instrument <laughs> to the ones he really loves. Yeah. <laughs> it's his eyeball. It's not a, a different instrument. It's totally sterile. It's fine. <laughs> um, back on Earth, Picard uh, does apologize to Rafi, and it's an apology that's very hard for her to hear, and I don't think she's really ready to forgive him or anything but she will sit there and listen to him explain that there are there's like a kill squad running around earth taking out synthetics and uh picard uh gets a little gets a little conspiracy theory-ish with her in this moment he says that there's the only way that that could possibly be happening is if somebody in the federation is complicit in in the fact that it's going on which is Pretty major revelation. And Rafi's like, remember how I told you that Romulans were involved in the first contact attack? Like, this is all connected. Yeah. So, uh, and she says she has concrete evidence of of that. Like, she has a, uh, what she is calling a PP tape (laughs) (laughs) of of this. And uh, Bashir, how is he involved? Admiral Bashir worked with the Romulans because they provided him with an endless supply of urine. <laughs> back to back up to his old tricks, old Admiral Bashir. Yeah. Uh, so she she basically kicks him out, uh, but says before he goes, says like I've got your 
I've got your captain. I've got your your pilot. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna help you get a uh, an off the book starship mission going. Um, so you know, st- stay by the phone. Unclear at this point if it's one of those favors you do for someone to just get them off your case oh. to leave you alone forever, or if this is going to be like an actual good referral that she's giving because she's so upset, right? Yeah, she's fucking pissed. At the Daystrom Institute, Dr. Girardi eats alone. You know the type at any workplace. I was this type. I, I was a I was a desk eater a lot of times. Yeah. Sometimes I'd just go for a walk. A lot of sad desk salad. Yeah. Yeah, that's me. I was uh I, I think I was mostly a break room eater unless I could convince somebody to go to like a hamburger restaurant with me. Yeah. Yeah, the off-campus lunch always seemed to take just a little bit too long to do regularly. Unless you're with a boss, and then all of a sudden, yeah. boss lunches are like four hours. Boss lunches are great, because sometimes the boss will put it on the company card. Yeah, that's a good thing. You get to fuck off work for a long time. Yeah, Commodore O uh, appears, and it does not seem she is interested in taking Gerardi to one of those four-hour boss lunches. She is, though, <laughs> looking like a boss in her sunglasses. Yeah, I thought these were really funny, because those Vulcan ears she has stick out really wide. Yeah. You know, she has to like go through doorways sideways with these ears <laughs> and uh, and these like wide sunglasses really accentuated that in a fun way. I did a little bit of poking around about Vulcan physiology because I was curious about her need for glasses. And what I found was that there was an Enterprise episode that referred to the idea of Vulcans having inner eyelids that were sufficient to protect a Vulcan's eyes and, and thus uh, making sunglasses unnecessary so Hmm. if that's true for vulcans and i think we both agree that this is a show that does its own homework pretty well you could either assume that commodore o isn't a vulcan or maybe she's a mirror universe vulcan or any number of other reasons or maybe she just likes looking stylish that that's also another thing yeah i'll be mad if she's a mirror universe yeah i don't think she's that I think that would be really bad. <laughs> she kind of looks uh, bad guy-ish in these glasses yeah. in a useful way, in a way that serves her character. Her pip was totally askew in a way that really bugged me. But then I was like, did she do that on purpose? I wonder how often, if you're in Starfleet, your time is spent fixing another person's pips. <laughs> like uh, yeah. It's sort of like catching someone's tag hanging out of the back of their neck. Oh, you got, oh, you yeah. got a pip. You got a pip. Yeah. <laughs> that can get risky. You know, it's like pointing out something on somebody's body can be can be a weird thing to do in a workplace. But uh, yeah. I would appreciate somebody pointing out my skewed pip. So instead of asking her to lunch, Commodore O asks her questions about her interactions with JL. And we don't get to see the end of this scene because we cut right back to the Borg ship where Hugh and Soji... A report for the interview that Hugh referred to earlier. And uh, just a classic Romulan doorman, reluctant to <laughs> open the velvet rope. Uh, Come on, man. You got to bring a couple more girls. <laughs> he was like, I, I brought a girl. What more do you want? <laughs> We're not messing up the ratio at all. <laughs> 
Yeah, very taciturn doorman here. Can you just check and see? I'm pretty sure that the uh, promoter put me on the list. Um, if Hugh isn't on your list, try looking for three or five or three of five. I mean, it could be under any of those names. It's what makes situations like this so frustrating for me. I'm sure you understand. Yeah, like, you know, your your naming conventions aren't exactly the same as ours. <laughs> Very complicated. Yeah. Uh, he really pulls rank on this Romulan in a way that I was surprised by. Like, usually a doorman, when he's decided to say, you need to get permission, is not going to accede to, I am the permission. <laughs> you know, what the scene does is underscore the attitudes that they may have toward uh, Borg or ex-Borg or synthetics. Like, that's what this scene is. And then we see uh, the people inside the... It's like a padded room for people who are uh, not necessarily living fully in reality. And, you know, we see one of them like creeping along the wall, just inspecting every crack and crevice in the wall. We see one of them doing a, uh, what I'll call a rhombics cube. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? It should be rhombus shaped. Shouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, and then and then we see Ramda, who is uh, she's kind of it kind of looks like a sort of like a tangram mashed up with a with a tarot card deck, yeah, kind of deal. Yeah, Ramda's played by Rebecca Wiskowski, and she is a real uh, God. She is a total veteran TV actor. She has been in yeah. dozens and dozens of things. A really familiar face to a lot of people. Totally. I think. Yeah, she looks great with this, uh, with all these like, you know, implant nubbins all over. Hugh calls this group in this room the Disordered, which I think is far kinder than the Romulans that flew over the cuckoo's nest. (laughs) God damn it. I was looking for the one flew over the cuckoo's nest joke so hard and you found it. Uh (laughs) Yeah, um, the implication I took away was that Romulans are uniquely bad at being brought back from assimilation. Oh, interesting. Like he says, these are the only Romulans to ever be assimilated as far as we know. And they seem, it seems like they just don't bounce back in the same way that, say, a JL Pipes would. This scene and this episode unlocked a theory that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop on you right now. This is a prediction, okay? Okay. We are going to learn that the Jat Vash created the Borg. I'm intrigued by this. The reason that it's a secret so crazy that would break your mind, like who are what's happening to all these people? Their minds are broken. It's because they learn the truth. The Borg mm. are their own creation. Dang. It's like shooting, it's like being in a submarine film and you shoot the torpedo, the, t- the torpedo comes back around at you. Yeah, this is something that I've thought a little about and... I uh, was thinking maybe the Jat Vash were created by Romulans in response to other Romulans creating the Borg or something like that. Oh, yeah. Like the, their anger about it seeming to indicate that maybe, but maybe it's embarrassment, not anger. Yeah. That's something we can relate to. <laughs> Big time. Uh, up in orbit of Earth, uh, we get to uh, we get to see this kind of sporty, I would say, runabout size spaceship. I don't know. It seems a lot bigger to me than that. Its configuration feels very X commercial transport. Like it's just one big tube of empty space. Yeah. Kind of uh, also reminds me a little bit of 
some of the ships that we would see like Maquis using yeah. in DS9. I like that it has stripes. So Captain Rios is uh, who we assume we're meeting when Picard comes off the transporter, but in fact, it is an EMH that is uh, the same actor, I think. Yeah. I'm afraid you might be too late. It's like, like his hair is different enough that I was like, is it like those Discover card commercials where it's like two actors that look very similar playing the two parts, or is it one actor playing the two parts, and I'm never quite sure? That's a great call, yeah. (laughs) They all have different uh, accents, too, which is fun. Yeah. Uh, Captain Rios does something that I really wished the guy in 1917 uh, would have done, which is dump some alcohol on his wound. Right. Uh, he is sitting there with this shard of tritanium in his shoulder, and it looks like it really like went right between his scapula and and his ribs. So he's like, he's, he gets it pulled out, but it's it, it looks like a, a wound that would be like a pretty serious, like at least overnight at the hospital level injury. And he's like, has the EMH pull it out and then doesn't do the dermal regenerator. Yeah, he wants the badass scar. Yeah, and we see that he has another, at least one other scar on on his body. So, I guess uh, maybe this is his approach to scarification. I don't need answers to every question on this or any other show. Like, I want to be clear about that. But Picard takes great pains in describing Captain Rios to Captain Rios. He describes the ship and how everything's all put together. But if some explosion happened... And Rios was hit with shrapnel. <laughs> what happened? No one thinks to ask. Rios doesn't say anything. The ship looks fine. Yeah. What's going on here? Does he have a holodeck or something? I don't know. It got stuck in my mind, this idea. Yeah. I, I, again, like it's strange to just uh, overlook that completely. What's going on? I don't know. I like it. Yeah. I mean, I, I also like the way, like, this is a scene where Picard is here to make a deal with Captain Rios. Right. And I really liked the, like, dad in a car dealership vibe I got from Picard. Right. Well, I can tell this ship really slaps. Yeah. I'm not, uh, I'm not accustomed to consulting lawyers before I go do things. <laughs> I just do them. Like, like, he's really, like, putting on airs like he's a badass, but I could tell like, it I was- I don't uh, negotiate over used car <laughs> prices. <laughs> I will offer this number and nothing further. But they, uh, but they have a, they have a shared interest in hating Starfleet, but also sort of revering and respecting it. Yeah, it's a fun conflict here because Picard can't help but try to figure out what his deal is, and Rios is a guy that definitely does not want that figured out. No, <laughs> my deal is my deal. Leave me alone. Right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this idea of like bitter bitterness about Starfleet, and you know, having thought it was one thing and found out it was another thing uh, felt like a very contemporary, like Trump's America idea. Mm. Like the thing that we most identified with in the world is now laid bare as like a, in fact, very broken and bad thing. We're really going to have to get used to this new idea of how people think about Starfleet because through all the seasons of TNG and DS9, and I think maybe even more so in DS9 than TNG, the idea of someone ever not wanting to be in Starfleet yeah. was just unthinkable. 
Yeah, all I wanted in the world when I was nine was to be in Starfleet. Uh, this is this was a problem that uh, that Ben Cisco had with with the Maquis. He just couldn't wrap his brains around it. Yeah. And now it feels like more and more characters we meet in Star Trek Picard are have either washed out or have mixed feelings about Starfleet in a way that that feels di- very new. There's also another new idea here, which is the idea that Picard is hiring this guy. Yeah. And I don't know what currency will be used for that exchange. How about I just don't assimilate you? (laughs) You know what I'm capable of. (laughs) The ship rental does not go well, Enterprise. (laughs) Uh, so, so yeah, it seems like, seems like a deal is made and then, uh, there is a scene where Rafi is, uh, doing all this research that, uh, uh, that she told Picard she for sure wouldn't do. Some interesting words pop up on the screen. I see Gorn Egg Uh pop up on the screen and, uh, that's the name of the crypto algorithm and then, uh, the word free cloud. And when uh, when she clicks on the hyperlink to Free Cloud, like a, a website with like Waluigi and a bunch of dice rolling around on it comes up. Yeah. So like kind of gives me the sense that it's like the Vegas of the galaxy. I get that feeling too. That interests me greatly. But what makes me <laughs> sad is that uh, pop-up windows still exist in the 24th yeah. century and have not been... Have not been eliminated. It's too bad. Ad, it's it's just a, a cat and mouse game with the ad blockers. Yeah. Speaking of resumes, uh, the the EMH reads off Picard's resume to Captain Rios and uh, accuses Captain Rios of being kind of a fanboy of Captain Picard, which is a fun like like it's it is a fun uh, reveal on his character after he was just being too cool for school and dumping his Pisco on his tritanium wound that, uh, that he may in fact really admire Picard. Like the idea that Rios could more or less captain his own ship without the need of a crew other than, uh, meta- other than holograms. But what it made me think of was like, what's the difference between an emergency hologram and a synthetic? But maybe it shouldn't be so simple. Emergency holograms can touch you for instance, to, to pull out a shard of shrapnel, like mm-hmm. could they not be given agency enough to to man stations or to do the work that was required on at Utopia Planitia? I'm unclear about the distinction that would mean one is uh, outlawed and one is not. Well, uh, what I know from Voyager is that the EMH was stuck in the six bay of Voyager for a lot of the run of that show. And then at some point they get their hands on some like super future technology that enables him to go around outside of the holiday or outside of the six bay and, and like down to planets and stuff. Hmm. But, uh, but it's like way beyond the technology of the Federation at that point. So it may be a like, it, it it may be something analogous to like the projectors can only throw so far right. and it's very expensive to, you know, reproduce them in enough abundance to make it useful. One thing I just thought of was that 
you know, what's the first system that fails if you're under attack? Like some sort of power system, right? Like the last yeah. thing you'd want to have happen in an emergency are all of your all of your EHs going away. <laughs> so that makes yeah. sense. That would be bad. Uh, it's fun to hear Picard's resume read and appreciated by other people. It's also interesting mm-hmm. to hear that Rios's last captain uh, had his brains blown out all over him. Yeah. I was surprised to find out that Picard was half Cherokee, half German. It's a hell of a combination. Thank God you did that. I was on my way there. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly got around, didn't you? <laughs> when Rios contemplates Picard's resume and has this conversation with the hologram, this feels so Star Warsy to me, right? This feels like right. Millennium Falcon. Uh, and by that, I mean like these leather seats against the metal bulkhead and the lighting, like all the textures feel very kit bashed in a, in a fun and new way. Yeah, like this ship doesn't isn't as busted looking as a Star Wars ship, but it's definitely scuffed and scraped. It's like a phone that's like been dropped a bunch and had its screen replaced, but you can tell that it's been through some shit. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like that Rios is giving all of his holograms different voices. It's like uh it's like the accent you give Siri. It's a very personal <laughs> yeah. thing. Sometimes for friendly fire, I will uh, have Siri read the Wikipedia article about a movie to me while I'm walking the dog the morning before we record an episode. Wow. And recently I was doing that and like there was one Spanish word in the article and Siri switched into like a Castilian Spanish accent <laughs> and then read the rest of the English in the Castilian Spanish accent like the production was <laughs> proceeded from uh, January 1968 like it was so, it was so fucking weird i'd never heard anything like it that's really cool but it totally unnecessary for it to also play spanish guitar <laughs> underneath those portions yeah yeah it's weird that a spanish guitar played when i just mimicked it <laughs> what is that about picard is doing a fair bit of traveling uh, in this episode and last, because we're back at the vineyard with him, where we finally see Laris. God, yeah, it's been so long. Yeah, and I get the sense that this may be her last episode for a while. Please do not let that be true. I do not want that to happen, but uh, Picard is leaving. He's made his decision, and Laris is coming to grips with it. Picard is not romantic about his time at the vineyard, and Laris... I think is definitely mourning his departure in a way that he is incapable of. Right. Yeah. Like in the episode family, he, uh, where he, you know, fights his brother in the mud, <laughs> you know, like this is a place that he feels like he should feel some belonging to and has attempted to force that issue, but he just never has, you know, they made wine barrels out of the burned timber of uh, Chateau Picard that is uh, his brother and and nephew and nephew died in. It's uh, <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. really bold flavors. Wow, yeah. So that starts this kind of part of the episode that starts cutting back and forth between the artifact and Chateau Picard quicker and quicker, and uh, we get Soji like like starting to kind of break through with Ramda and then, you know, 
Jabon comes in with a, a picnic basket for Captain Picard. He drops one of the apples and in ducking to grab it, manages to accidentally duck some Jatvash phaser fire. And then a fucking rugged fight scene breaks out in Picard's office. It's great. It's, it's like street fight in a phone booth style. There's not a lot of room to maneuver. And so everything yeah. feels very close in proximity and dangerous. And there's not a lot of glass in here, but basically everything that is glass breaks. One of my favorite shots is from inside one of the glass bookcases. Yeah. Shooting out. And they go to that a couple of times, and it's and it's cool both times. Uh, another thing that's cool is that Picard is like a uh, is like an NRA guy. He's just got like hidden guns concealed all over this office, <laughs> and every time one of them goes to the floor, they find a a, a gun in a holster under the coffee table or whatever, and uh, and they pretty pretty quickly dispatch like an eight guy motorcycle bad guy team. That comes in. It sucks because we cut to that shot, that angle up from below Picard's desk, and you see the the secret pistol he has under there, but you also see the Matt Lauer button. <laughs> God damn it, Picard. <laughs> Be better. I mean, who installed that? You know he didn't install that himself. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I love the like the ta- tactical conversation between Laris and Jabon. Like they, you know, they shut the they shut the alarms off or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that they all kind of like get hit pretty bad in this fight. Like right. Picard goes flying over the desk at one point, and like Laris gets gets hit pretty hard. Like they, it's not a it's not a fight that seems like a sure thing that they're gonna win. You know. There's a brand of fighting that you see a lot in the in the movies of the 80s and the 90s, which are like full wind-up punches, and, and those punches are traded. But something yeah. happened in the early 2000s up until now where it feels like hand-to-hand fighting really hits hard, and you can yeah. feel the hits with, with the sounds that are used, and this is one of those fights. These are post-born identity fights. Right, Exactly. The uh, the way this ends is they've uh, pretty much beaten everybody, but one more bad guy comes in with a rifle and then is shot, and uh, it is revealed that the person that shot him is Dr. Gerardi, who is very freaked out that she shot somebody, and especially freaked out when she finds out that there's no stun setting on the kind of rifle she used. So she is uh, going through the I just murdered somebody thing. <laughs> Uh, and Picard is just like, hey, thank you. <laughs> Come sit over here and have a glass of wine. Siobhan's like, <laughs> guns are only made to do one thing. What did you think was going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> they get the helmet off of this Romulan, and uh, this is one thick daddy. <laughs> He's really the, the porkins of the Jat Vash, right? <laughs> He's a thick king. He is a thick, thick motherfucker. <laughs> hey, Picard, uh, do you think it would be useful to tell everyone uh, about the possible presence of an acid tooth at any moment in time here? Oh, I was so worried when Picard was standing right yeah, in front of this guy. I thought the same thing. You, you do not want to be in his spit range. No. <laughs> Keep well clear, like, or like wrap a plastic bag around the lower half of his face. There's some fun, like when they when they take the mask off of him, uh, he's a Ridge Romulan, and this is something that uh, that Laris and Jaban talk about. Laris cuttingly 
says that he's a northerner, just like Juban. Yeah. It made me think that like uh, there's got to be some pretty fun nicknames for the northerners, right? I'm gonna go. <laughs> I'm gonna go with Ruffles. <laughs> That's what they call the northern Romulans because they have ridges. Yeah, it's a well-known fact. On the artifact, this com- conversation between Ramda and Soji proceeds, and Soji's made um, a breakthrough by kind of using this kind of formal-sounding permission to enter enter the table uh, by discussing the fact that Romulan houses have a fake front door, but really you go in through the back. So she goes and sits behind Ramda and like says this kind of like, I don't know, like plausible deniability coded language about like, can I come in? Traditional Romulan houses are a lot like uh, Mormon college students. They start with the back door. (laughs) Yeah, it's God's blind spot. (laughs) Ramda lets her in and then, uh, and then they start talking about myth, which is a word that Ramda does not like. She's not a fan of the word mythology. And this uh, this is a bit of a breakthrough. Like they are actually able to have a conversation. And uh, what they get to is the idea of uh, the mythos. I mean, like the, the word that Ramda would rather Soji use in lieu of mythology is the news. And uh, Soji sees that as potentially a very fruitful avenue to explore with the idea of uh, rehabilitating these uh, these disordered Romulans. So this is, uh, you know, this is very exciting for Soji and for Hugh. Uh, but then as this conversation proceeds, Ramda like looks up and actually gets a look at Soji for the first time because yeah. she's been kind of, uh, you know, like, like I do, like I rarely make eye contact with people when I'm having a conversation with them. Yeah. She's uh, she's the real George Clooney of this scene. <laughs> Legendary for her onset pranks, also. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, yeah, she when she sees Soji, she really flips the fuck out, and this starts intercutting pretty fast with the uh, with the thick Jat Vash that they're interrogating, uh, and they both refer to Soji as the destroyer. I love this sequence, and I love how it's paced and increasingly fast as it goes. It's awesome. And I love how one story tells the others. Both of them say she's not a girl and she's not what you think she is. Right. Like they're assuming that the thought is that she's human. Right. And Picard already knows that she's not. It's interesting that Ramda also says, which sister are you? The one who dies or the one who lives? Like if we are to assume that there are two sets of twins or maybe five total. Yeah. Counting or not counting Lal. Uh, one wonders what that could mean also. Right. Painting. Colors produced on a surface by applying a pigment. This is about the time where uh, old Acid Tooth uh, <laughs> crunches into that little little Pez, the Acid Pez, and starts spitting around. Yeah. Real shame to see what happens to this uh, to this nice carpet that Picard has in his in his office. Um, and this is like intercutting the melty uh, Tal Shiar and Chaban's jacket melting with, uh, with Ramda snatching the pistol of one of the security guards in the, uh, in the room and threatening to blow her own brains out. And when Soji runs and grabs it, I wondered if that was her activation moment. Is she now 
uh, activated in the same way that Dodge was in uh, episode one. I think the answer is in the question because Soji uh, pivots into shooting and killing everyone in the room. <laughs> and then we go to credits. Pretty crazy moment. Yeah, I mean, I think what she does here is demonstrate the power without being fully activated because the way she closes the distance between her and Ramda is so quick that yeah. that I think that that could count as as something strange, but it's not strange enough for Hugh to comment on it even. Right. And then maybe the scene where she blows in a call to her digital mom is her being deactivated. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I could get with that. It seems like it has like a soporific effect on her. Boy, I, I, I totally know how this feels. I think anytime, <laughs> anytime you could use a good space out, I think, uh, I think calling your folks is yeah. the recipe for that. <laughs> yeah. Are you listening? Or are you doing something else? <laughs> Nerik comes in later and finds her just passed out. And uh, yeah. he's like, what happened? She's like, I was talking to my mom. It's like, all right, I get it. <laughs> Were you smoking some of the plants that you're growing in all of these uh, herb gardens? Narek's like, you didn't tell her about me, did you? Because I am not ready for that. <laughs> I thought we were just taking it easy. I didn't think this was going to be so serious. I don't want to have to meet them. You know how mad my mom's going to be if she finds out I'm dating somebody that's not a Romulan? We talked about this. <laughs> What Soji tells Narek in this scene is that she's pretty confused about why she suddenly knows so many details about what's happening uh, to the people around her, like stuff that seems beyond her uh, her security clearance. Right. And like, I think it's easy to forget that like the premise that was set up in episode one was that they were both sort of being puppet mastered to get things or to mm -hmm. get access to things. And Dodge was going to be getting access to the synthetic research facilities at the Daystrom Institute. And now Soji seems to be oriented toward getting access to these, these specific Romulans because she's very interested in uh, doing work on them. But in, in this conversation, uh, she says that she like had a bunch of information about them that she didn't know she had. Like she, she's like trying to, uh, retroactively justify having had this information by saying like, I mean, I've read like reams and reams of documents about this and it, like maybe I absorbed it and just don't remember it. But it seems like, uh, this is part of a larger scheme. If Dash and Soji are on a mission for Maddox and their labor is divided in the way that you're talking about, uh, what other things would Maddox need from potentially two other synthetics, I wonder? It's a really interesting thing to consider, and it's a plan that kind of makes sense if you're attempting to gather materials for another project. Right. Um, we have a... Uh a brief interaction between Narek and uh, Rizzo, who is no longer in her human drag. She is, uh, she's living her truth as a Romulan. She's got the nemesis shoulder roll going. Yeah, yeah, that is totally the same shoulders that uh, that the Tom Hardy character in Nemesis has. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good call. Um, so you know, uh, evil plot continues apace, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> And then um, we get uh, a scene where Dr. Gerardi uh, declares to Picard that she's coming with him. And I wanted to talk about this scene because I think Picard 
as a character has had his call to adventure already in this series, but uh, it occurred to me that Dr. Gerardi is is maybe being set up to be just as much the hero of the show because she has had a full-blown call to adventure. Like, she was sitting there minding her own beeswax being a scientist, and he came with this amazing news and decided that she needed to go see it through and, like, has already, like, started the adventure. Like, she she killed a tail shiar uh, <laughs> assassin right. already and is, like, affirmatively saying, I am going with you and look, like, like this is... M- as if not more important to me than it is to you. And I just think she is like a really fucking cool and brave character. And I didn't expect another character to be like vying for the pole position in this show, the way she seems to be getting set up to do. I agree. I mean, when you sketch out a character, you're trying to figure out what their motivations are. And Gerardi is motivated by both hope and fear because she could wait out the rest of her days in that empty office building waiting for a phone call that will never come. And I think that is a possible future that she wants to avoid. And the hope of continuing her work with Picard is definitely there. But Commodore O also represents uh, a fear response. She doesn't want to stick around to find out what O is digging into. O is a very powerful person, more powerful than Dr. Gerardi. And so in order to avoid her, uh, yeah. she wants to be with Picard as well. So there are these different forces moving Gerardi through the board here. And I think they're both very powerful. I am really excited to see where this goes. And the next scene is them up on uh, this ship that uh, Rios captains, uh, there's a fun Raffi swiveling around in her chair going, well, 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 Picard, we meet again. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she is going to hitch a ride to Free Cloud because that's where Bruce Maddox is. Uh, there's some, the semantics of this are very important to her. She does not want Picard to get the sense that they're friends again or that she is joining the team or anything. Uh, and she doesn't want, Picard's new friend, Dr. Gerardi, to think that they're cool either. <laughs> it's that situation where you're splitting a ride with someone to a place that you don't want to hang out with them at. Yeah. Like, like, look, we can go to Vegas together, but I'm getting my own hotel room. <laughs> In a different hotel, even. <laughs> yeah, it's like how we tour when we go do live shows. That's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> Rafi and Gerardi are like oil and water. Yeah. In that way, though, that Gerardi, I think, wants to like Rafi and maybe wants to earn her trust and respect, but Rafi just is not here for that at all. She's got the emotional walls up and has for 14 years for good reason. Yeah. The uh, the final line of the episode, Adam. Engage. There we go. We get it. We get an external shot on a ship going to warp. Yeah. And we're off. We're off. Did you like the episode? I did. Really did. I've liked all three episodes. I believe this is a great setup for the seven eps to come. I mean, it it sure seems that way. I think we have all of the, almost all of the ingredients here. Yeah. All the pieces are in place. We know just enough about them to understand a little bit of their motivations while still uh, leaving room to be surprised about their actions. I'm, I'm down. I'm down with it. 
I have been thinking a lot about the watching of them as three pieces versus watching them as one. And I honestly think they worked a lot better as one thing. Interesting. Like there were some things about the way that was presented to us that was imperfect. Like yeah. in in editing the three episodes together, they did a lot to make it one contiguous story. But like every time you go to the board cube, there's a long CG right. like zoom right. in through the cube shot. And like in a in the three episodes cut together as one thing that felt like super repetitive. It's like, okay, we get it. It's a board yeah. cube. <laughs> and, and, and like things like that really didn't work or like the showing the Mars attack a second time really didn't work. But overall, just like the way the story propels itself, it feels like the first installment in a series of feature films and I uh, I think that like, you know, like the middle episode we talked about feeling very exposition-y. <laughs> it's not the middle episode, it's episode two. But uh, I'm hoping what is good about it is evident to people that only watched it episodically. And and I and I think it is a good show, but I, I'm just saying like, I think it worked better in that other format. And it, it's weird to have gotten a chance to see it both ways. Yeah, those are those are good observations. And I agree. Do you want to observe whether we have any priority one messages, Adam? I think we've got some. Okay. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Adam, we have a couple of priority one messages here. The first one is from Caitlin and her cat, and it is for Ben and Adam. And also a shout out to the Res fam. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's R E H S E. Ressa? Ankylosaur. Yeah. Let's go with Ressa. Ankylosaur. Ressa. Ankylosaur. <laughs> Thank you for creating this wonderful pod which helped me laugh in times when I didn't think I could find laughter. Ben, I'm sorry for our awkward conversation after first contact in Brooklyn. I've only been starstruck twice when I met Peace Do outside a Broadway show and that day. Scarves for disco. Wow. As a non-star, it is really amazing to think <laughs> that I could starstrike someone. <laughs> Wow, yeah, I mean, I'll uh, I'll never be nervous around you, Ben. I have no idea what <laughs> that's got to be like. Uh, I, I can't say that I've ever had that effect on anyone, but uh, but now I can. So, <laughs> a little feather in my cap. Open invitation to any friends of DeSoto, uh, no matter what time of day, no matter when. Ben can always be approached. <laughs> you don't have to be nervous. It's true. Adam, do we have any other Priority One messages? Ben, our second Priority One message is from good friend of the podcast, Brie Belke. And it is for fellow friend of DeSoto, Card Daddy Bill Tilly. Whoa. These two are on our uh, our Mount DeSoto more. <laughs> These are two of the faces. Yeah, that's true. Message goes like this. To the original Card Daddy, can you believe we are getting fresh Star Trek as a birthday present? Better than Klingon paint sticks. <laughs> Wishing you an amazing birthday. Ko slish dash bash. Your your Klingon is peerless. Yeah, I needed Kern to come in here and and do that line reading for me. Tap out to Kern. Yeah, uh, looks like Bill's birthday is a couple days after this episode drops on the thirteenth. So uh, everybody wish Bill Bill Tilly a happy birthday on Twitter. Everyone raise your zebra hoofs 
in honor of uh, two of the best in the biz, Brie Belke and Bill Tilly. You know, they're really on Mount Zebramore. It's really you, me, Brie, and Bill on Mount Zebramore is what it is. And a zebra cup as the fifth fifth face. (laughs) No, we're just all holding them. (laughs) Big dumb straw sticking out of the top of the mountain. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, if anybody would like to make a deposit in the Zebra Hoof Fund... Uh, you know what to do. You head to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron, where it's 100 bucks for a personal message and 200 bucks for a commercial message. Both of which go a long way in helping support the ongoing production of The Greatest Discovery. I spent a lot of last week sick in bed. And one thing I was so happy I had when I needed something to eat but didn't really have the energy to cook myself something was Factor Meals. Got a couple of these in the fridge at all times and they are delicious, fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted meals. And they're ready to go in just about two minutes. And this is convenience food that is actually tasty and full of real ingredients and not hyper-processed crap. And they got you covered all throughout the day. They got pancakes, smoothies, grab-and-go bites, and uh, you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule deliveries at any time. So head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use code trek50 to get 50% off. That's code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. What do you think of when you think of male grooming? Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product, or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave, a little spritz of fragrance. Me? I think of shaving my nuts. And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, Nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer, featuring two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra-large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. (laughs) Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! 
Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you discover yourself and Edward Larkin? Edward Larkin! I did. I uh, am picking Jaban for this episode as my Edward Larkin because uh, when the... When the bad guys start start storming Picard's office, uh, everybody grabs the nearest thing they can use as a weapon, and what he grabs is a bottle of the Chateau Picard, which he then hits a guy on the head with, but the guy's wearing a helmet. <laughs> yeah, you got to do better than that. Grab the wine key. No, break the wine bottle and stab him with it. Uh, you know? Bottle knife him. I thought he was going to go Pan's Labyrinth on that guy. Yeah, that could have gotten real ugly. <laughs> <laughs> our, our feelings would change about Jabon pretty fast. Whoa, those northerners are fucking savages. <laughs> God, ruffles are rugged. <laughs> Did you have an Edward Larkin, Adam? Yeah, I I mean, I can only imagine how much fun it's got to be for an actor to play multiple roles, and Santiago Cabrera got to yeah. in playing the EMH, the ENH, and as Rios. I mean, that's that's three wardrobe changes, three accents, a lot to do for him as an actor, but um, but he's great at all three roles, and I'm yeah. excited to see if there are, are more that he's going to play. I mean, how many EHs are there going to be on this ship? I don't know. I, I really liked him a lot. I've, I'm not familiar with his work before now. I assume he has been in some stuff. Yeah, I didn't look into that, but uh, you and me both. Man, I'm excited to see what happens to his character and to follow his career a little bit more than we have. Yeah. Season one, episode four of Star Trek Picard is called Absolute Candor. Ben, what can you tell us about it? A little promo for it at the end of this one. Uh, it seems like uh, Picard gets into his Dixon Hill costume and goes and tries to hire a uh, a Romulan swordsman. I'm unsure why why he would need one. But uh, it seems like I'm going to guess that this uh, colony that he visits is is refugees from the from the supernova. I'm going to guess that there are no beam weapons allowed on Free Cloud, and he needs a swordsman with him. Oh, do you think that that's Free Cloud? No, no. Okay. I think he's still making crew. Oh, for the I free see. Free Cloud mission. That's that's what I'm guessing. He's arming himself for this Free Cloud situation. I don't have any special information as as. We've said before, this is the last episode that Ben and I have, have pre-seen. Yeah. The other thing that uh, we see, though, is uh, some space fighting against another ship, and that other ship looks like the TOS version of the Romulan Warbird. So That's fun. <laughs> so a, a real beater at this point in history. If we see Romulan beaters, then what are the chances we see old Federation ships at one point really or cool. another? That'd be great. Yeah. That's some fan service I could get into. 
I mean, they were talking in, in the beginning of this episode about like, what if we take ships out of mothballs to continue the project? So, I don't remember what episode we were asked this, but one of the questions we've been asked over the years has been, what sort of show would you like to see Star Trek make? And the guy who works at the shipyard series would be great. Like, yeah. I want to know how shipyards work. I want to see all those mothballed ships. Give me all that stuff. A fake reality show from the Discovery Channel about yeah. guys that buy old mothballed Federation ships and soup them up and put, like, you know, candy paint on them and stuff. It's Star Trek Storage Wars. And <laughs> on this episode, we're opening up an old Connie yeah. to see what treasure may be inside. <laughs> P.U., this replicator stinks. <laughs> oh, they got the, the PH4 matrix on their... On their uh, protein packets gross yeah fun well uh looking forward to it big time uh you want to throw it to robs oh i'll i'll throw it to robs right now robs are you open go long (laughs) rob you gotta hold up your hands so we don't hit you with this show you gotta be ready to catch it come on robs like you've never caught a show before The Greatest Discovery is a Maximum Fun podcast, hosted by Adam Pranica and Ben Harrison. The show is produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is produced by Friend of DeSoto and YouTube sensation Adam Ragusia. The Greatest Discovery is a podcast that's made possible by the support of listeners like you. To make sure that we continue to make episodes, visit MaximumFun.org join and pledge your support. By doing so, you'll gain access to all of the Maximum Fun bonus content, including our bonus episodes. If you want to chat about the show on various forms of social media, just search for our discussion groups, or use the hashtag GreatestDiscovery. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam's found at CutForTime, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks! It's so cool to be a 58-year-old man with a giant fitted baseball hat that you pull down over your ears. Got to keep those ears from flying off. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.